In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deeper look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. Well, greetings to you. My name is Daniel Ray. I am a staff apologist with Watchman Fellowship here in Arlington, Texas. And I am also the co-host of the Good Heavens podcast, a podcast about the universe I do with my friend and co-host Wayne Spencer. And today I'm just going to do a little podcast on the side here uh, about an article from 2017 that suggests the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God actually disproves God's existence. An atheist on Twitter recently shared an article written in 2017 by a theist claiming that the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God casts doubt on God's existence. The article is titled, Fine-Tuning Does Not Imply a Fine-Tuner. Some think fine-tuning is evidence for God, but in fact, the opposite is true. It was written by Hans Halverson in January of 2017. Now, the fine-tuning argument, unfortunately, can get quite technical, as it engages both sophisticated probability theorizing and challenging mathematical concepts in physics and cosmology. This makes the fine-tuning argument difficult for the average person to follow. Now, I am no expert in fine-tuning, probability theory, or physics, let me admit up front. But having researched and put together a book on the cosmos, as well as having interviewed several professional astronomers, a few physicists, and some prominent published philosophers for our podcasts over the years, I hope to provide a simpleton's view of fine-tuning and the article mentioned. All mistakes herein are my own. So what is fine-tuning? In 1973, during a series of lectures celebrating Nicholas Copernicus's 500th birthday, a graduate student of the late Dr. Stephen Hawking, Brandon Carter, first presented the anthropic principle the unsettling, to some, idea that there existed a great many constants in physics, certain numerical values expressing fundamental forces in the universe, that turn out to be exactly what is required for biological life as we know it to exist in the universe. The cosmic elephant in the physics lab now, because of Carter's essay, was, are these numbers all just lucky coincidences? Or does this peculiar arrangement suggest some sort of mind is behind the universe? This elephant caused no small stir for physicists and cosmologists and other scientists. For allegedly science since the time of Copernicus, so the modern Copernican revolution myth goes, had been thoroughly debunking the idea of our special place in the universe. Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, for example, believed that Darwin's idea of natural selection, coupled with Earth no longer being the center of the universe, 
should relegate man to, quote, a curious accident in a backwater, end quote. The late planetary astronomer Dr. Carl Sagan believed man was just a, quote, thin film on a solitary lump of rock and metal, end quote. Cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin summarizes the modern myth of the Copernican Revolution. Quote, In times of antiquity, we, humans, were at the center of the universe. The sky was not far off, and the fates of kingdoms and individuals could be read from the pattern of stars and planets on its velvet vault. Our descent from the center stage started with Copernicus, and by the end of the last century it was nearly complete. Not only is the Earth not the center of the solar system, but the Sun itself is an unremarkable star at the outskirts of a rather typical galaxy. And yet, we could still hold on to the idea that there was something special about our Earth, that it was the only planet with this particular set of life forms, and that our human civilization with its art, culture, and history was unique in the entire universe. One might think that that alone was reason enough to treasure our little planet like a precious work of art. Now we have been robbed of this last claim to uniqueness. In the worldview that has emerged from eternal inflation, our Earth and our civilization are anything but unique. Instead, countless identical civilizations are scattered in the infinite expanse of the cosmos, with humankind reduced to absolute cosmic insignificance, our descent from the center of the universe is now complete. End quote. But how to explain a unique plethora of mathematical constants and quantities describing our universe, ones that appear to be exactly what is needed for carbon-based biological life to exist in the universe? Was the specialness of human life in the cosmos making a comeback? Physicists began wondering, from where did these numbers come? Why these values? How is it that our mathematics work so uncannily well describing the fabric of the cosmos? There are now two versions of Brandon Carter's anthropic principle. One is the weak anthropic principle, which says that we wouldn't be here were it not for the fine-tuning of the constants and quantities of the universe. And then there is the strong anthropic principle, which says that the fine-tuning of the constants and quantities were specifically designed to permit the existence of human beings. The weak anthropic principle, however, does not explain why the constants are the way they are or why we exist. Some skeptics of the fine-tuning argument say that we wouldn't be here to observe these constants if they were not the way they were. End of story. No need to ask why, it just is. The strong anthropic principle, at least from a scientific perspective, cannot be proven or disproven, but given the evidence for other minds with which we are most familiar, and given what we know about mathematics, the strong anthropic principle certainly remains a valid argument for God's existence. Alexander Vilenkin once more, pondering the origin of the mathematics of the cosmos, quote, it follows that the laws should be there even prior to the universe itself. Does this mean that the laws are not mere descriptions of reality and can have an independent existence of their own? In the absence of space, time, and matter, what tablets could they be written upon? The laws are expressed in the form of mathematical equations. If the medium of mathematics is the mind, 
Does this mean that mind should predate the universe? End quote. Does the mathematics point to God? As apologist and Christian philosopher William Lane Craig often points out in his debates and writings, a number is an abstract object, and, quote, abstract objects can't cause anything. That's part of what it means to be abstract. The number seven, for example, can't cause any effects, end quote. There must be a transcendent cause behind the numbers. As Craig says, quote, the existence of the universe must be a transcendent mind, which is what believers understand God to be, end quote. Alexander Vilenkin, however, says that the numerical constants of the universe, quote, appear completely arbitrary, end quote, yet nearly agrees with Craig and goes on to say how, quote, we can imagine the creator sitting at the control board of the universe and turning different knobs to adjust the values of the constants. Shall we make it 1835 or 1836? As of now, however, we have no indication that the choice of the constants is preordained. The creator's choice of the constants may appear rather capricious, and yet, remarkably, there does seem to be a system behind it, although not of the kind physicists have been hoping for. Research in diverse areas of physics has shown that many essential features of the universe are sensitive to the precise values of some of the constants. Had the creator adjusted the knobs slightly differently, the universe would be a strikingly different place. And most likely, neither we nor any other living creatures would be around to admire it. End quote. Consider some basic fine-tuning constants. These quotes are taken directly from the book God, the Evidence on pages 29 and 30. I have slightly altered the quotes for descriptive clarity. Patrick Glynn notes, quote, if the strong nuclear force, the force that holds the protons and neutrons together inside the core of an atom, were just slightly stronger, less than 2% of its present measurement, no protons would have been able to form, and thus no atoms and no periodic elements. Decreasing this force by as little as 5% would have prevented stars from existing. End quote. Glenn goes on to say, quote, if the mass difference between the proton and neutron were not exactly as it is, roughly twice the mass of an electron, all neutrons would have become protons or vice versa. No chemistry as we know it and no life. Dr. Paul Davies, who is not a theist, he is a noted author and professor of theoretical physics at Adelaide University, says this, quote, the really amazing thing is not that life on Earth is balanced on a knife edge, but that the entire universe is balanced on a knife edge, and would be total chaos if any of the natural constants were off even slightly. You see, Davies adds, even if you dismiss man as a chance happening, the fact remains that the universe seems unreasonably suited to the existence of life, almost contrived. You might say a put-up job, end quote. Getting back to the article mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, why would a person who believes in God say that the fine-tuning argument is not evidence for God? Here is an excerpt from Hans Halverson's article. Quote, There's a deep problem lurking in the background of the fine-tuning argument, which rests on two factual claims. One is that a life-conducive universe exists, and the second is that this kind of universe is improbable. 
It's the second fact that is responsible for the resurrection of the design argument. And fine-tuning advocates are so focused on using it as a premise that they failed to see that it needs an explanation. That is, why is it the case that it's unlikely for an arbitrary universe to be conducive to life? It's not plausible to write it off as a brute necessity, because it's not obvious that this had to be the case, nor could it have been discovered by pure reason alone. The reason to believe the second fact is because it is a prediction of our best physical theory. But even if we do find the much-needed explanation, it will be disastrous for the fine-tuning argument, because it would disconfirm God's existence. After all, a benevolent God would want to create the physical laws so that life-conducive universes would be overwhelmingly likely." End quote. So these are just my attempts at summarizing and then addressing the points made in the article. The author claims we must explain why it is highly unlikely that an arbitrary universe could produce life as we know it. He claims this improbability of an arbitrary universe supporting life calls God's existence into question. He suggests that if God exists, then the odds of a life-permitting universe coming into being are overcome. He wonders why God would set up such improbable odds and then simultaneously overcome them. Does this defeat the fine-tuning argument? Not at all. First, if I am understanding the fine-tuning argument properly, the improbability factor is considered from a purely naturalistic point of view, as if God did not exist. What are the odds nature arranged herself this way, and what we see are just a series of lucky coincidences? Second, the author concludes that fine-tuning is neither, quote, brute fact, end quote, or a, quote, true premise in a theological argument, end quote. But this appears to be nothing more than an arbitrary assertion. Certainly, this is not a scientific conclusion. What is fine-tuning evidence of, then? All he says in the article is that fine-tuning is, quote, proof of something, end quote, but refrains from extrapolating. This is hardly a defeater against the argument. Finally, he claims fine-tuning is merely evidence that there needs to be more scientific research brought to bear on the question, and suggests that saying God is ultimately responsible for the constants and quantities we see is, quote, intellectually lazy, end quote. He seems to believe that additional scientific explanations for fine-tuning will eventually call into question God's existence. But if I am reading scripture carefully, it seems to be part of God's nature to bring us to situations which seem to us utterly impossible. Why? So that we are bereft of helping ourselves, that we recognize our utter dependency upon God, and that through doing the impossible for us, God is spectacularly glorified and man is properly humbled. Here is an atheist rejoinder to the fine-tuning argument. Quote, the atheistic cosmologist Sean Carroll attacks the argument from design based on the finely tuned universe by affirming that, quote, there are many features of the laws of nature which don't seem delicately adjusted at all, but seem completely irrelevant to the existence of life, end quote. For Carroll, quote, the most obvious example is the sheer vastness of the universe. It would hardly seem necessary to make so many galaxies just so life could arise on a single planet around a single star, end quote. The atheist even asks, quote, why do the constituents of nature exhibit this pointless duplication 
if the laws of nature were construed with life in mind. Carroll fails to see God as quote, the inexhaustible source of being, because Carroll can only understand God as an external designer. He cannot understand quote, the grandiose excess represented by the universe's hundred billion galaxies or, quote, why God would do so much more fine-tuning of the state of the universe than seems to have been necessary, end quote. The grandiose excess of the universe can only be understood when the universe ceases to be an artifice and becomes, quote, the epiphanic and sacramental representation of God, end quote. Nature can only be properly understood when God is properly understood. In other words, when God is misconceived as an intrinsic designer, Nature is unavoidably misunderstood as an artifact. End quote. The misconceived atheist objection to fine tuning includes the idea that fine tuning means God was primarily concerned for our existence, which is not in fact what Scripture says. God created the universe to accommodate human life, and that is part of his glory, but human life is not the primary reason he created the universe the way he did. In the most simplistic of terms, God created it for his glory. The cosmos, the entirety of creation, is all about the Son of Man and Son of God, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Quote, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This means that the strong and weak nuclear forces holding the atom together is finally a reflection of God in Christ holding the universe together. So what else does the Bible say about God's involvement with creation? First, the heavens and earth were created and are sustained by God in Christ Jesus. Genesis 1, Hebrews 1, 3, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. John 1, Romans 1, 18 through 20, Colossians 1, 16 through 20. Second, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19, Psalm 33, 6, Psalm 50, verse 6, and Isaiah 40, 26. Third, the earth was created to be inhabited and is filled with God's glory. From Isaiah 45, 18 and Isaiah 6, 3. And lastly, creation was made to be known and studied. Creation reveals God's invisible attributes. Job 38-41, through 41, Psalm 8, Psalm 111-2, Proverbs 8, and Romans 1, 18-20. I have produced this both as a video and audio podcast. Check out the notes below for links. For more information about our ministry and podcasts, do visit watchman.org. And for Good Heavens and Watchman Fellowship, I'm staff apologist Daniel Ray.